Hi, this is Stacy, and I listen to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Here's why I listen. I found When Dating Hurts after experiencing a domestic violence incident with somebody I'd been dating for about a year. At the time, I didn't feel like I could tell friends or family what was happening, so I was searching for information, stories, statistics, anything that might validate what I was feeling. I listened alone in my car on the three-hour drive to and from my ex's place. Every guest provided something valuable, whether it was validation or information. Hearing the ways other people coped with their situation and what their lives looked like after helped me in more ways than one. I also have to thank Bill for his ability to turn the tragedy of losing his daughter into his steadfast persistence on the topic of domestic abuse. Knowing there was at least one person out there who might applaud my ability to get out might have saved my life. I know it's saving the lives of others too, so thank you, Bill. We cannot thank you enough. The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know. And that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens, and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. Thank you for your support. Let's return to our interview with Lieutenant Mark Wynn. Here is part two, the final episode with Mark. As a public speaker, and I've done a lot of that, you try to focus and take a deep breath, but it's just, I mean, especially, here's the other thing, in these events over the years that you're doing and I've done for years, the room's filled with survivors. It's almost like you can feel that energy coming off of people. It's like, they don't say anything. I mean, in the film, we had a young guy, officer in Vernon, Texas. We were in a meeting, and he was, I was speaking. He, was, he wouldn't say anything. He was looking at me. He wasn't talking. But as soon as we stepped outside away from everybody else, he told me about his own survival as a child. The country is filled with survivors. There's just this amazing moment where, and I think when people see that, when they see people choking up and trying to get through the words and trying to get the, they, they, that's, that's a real gift to them because they're thinking, I wish I could do that. I wish I could get up in front of a group like Bill and talk about my mother or my sister or, or my daughter. And I can't. It's a little mountain to climb every time. And I've had people come up to me after speeches and saying, I wish I could do that. Or I wrote the book and people were saying, I don't know really how to write. I could never put it together. I could never see it through. I emotionally would collapse. I mean, all those things. And I do feel, in my case, that I have certain gifts. I'm fortunate that I have them. I can package it up. I can get it out there. So I feel like I have to do it because I can do it. And I do see the results, whether it's a room that's listening carefully or people buying the book or listening to the podcast. But basically, it's like, here are these things, and you should use them, and use them plenty. 
I spent probably five years working our forensic unit, our crime scene forensic unit. And then I was a sergeant in that unit. And then I later went to homicide. So pretty intense work when you're dealing with violent crimes. And I spent, you know, uh, almost 10 years walking through killing fields. I'm not being melodramatic. When you have a city with 100 murders every year, you, you're walking through fields of death day in, day out. So life, as it should be with everybody, becomes unbelievably precious. And for any of those people, women or men today in uniform, and anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, if you were to say to them, I'm going to teach you how to stop people from killing one another, and it doesn't take as nearly as much as it does to arrest somebody for murder. It's actually easier to stop a murder than to investigate a murder. That's an incredible moment in, in, in criminal justice. But the other part, too, for me, is to appreciate the negative and positives of police intervention. I saw it in my own mother being afraid to call the police. And I saw it in other mothers as a cop being afraid to call the police. And I'll give you one quick example. One of the other jobs I had here in Nashville when I was an officer, I was on our SWAT team for 15 years. And we would respond to 50 tactical calls a year. And most were directly related to domestic violence, hostage, barricaded, suicide situations. We had a woman one night who was held hostage by her husband. It was a three-hour ordeal. And negotiators convinced him to surrender. And she stepped out on the front porch in the middle of this call and we were really close to her. We were trying to pull her out of the way from the house so we could rescue her. And she ran back into the house so we couldn't rescue her. And we were telling her, where were the police? Run, run, run. And after the call, we debriefed her. And we were so glad she was alive. But we asked her, can you explain your decision to run back into the house, which is not unusual. And she said, look, I've been through this many times before. And we had never responded there for any, for any call in that, in that instance. And she said, no, I know you've never been here because I made sure you'd never been here. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, over the years, he would pull the gun on me. And the neighbors called because they saw him had a gun to her head. That's what it was. It was a real hostage situation. And the way I would get him to put the gun away is I would negotiate. I would, I wouldn't tell him, I would tell him, I won't go to see my mother. I won't take the kids. I won't go to the shelter. I won't get a protect. And he put the gun away. But she said, there's been times when it didn't work. And I submit and he rapes me. And of course, we were speechless. And then she said, but you know, my problem's not my husband. And we said, who, who's your problem? She said, you are. We just rescued her. And we, we asked her, can you explain that? She said, look, I knew how to survive without you. I didn't know how to survive with you. Now, this is a very intelligent, a very educated woman articulating to a, a bunch of, you know, big cops with guns and helmets. I pay a price when I call you. And I don't know what, I, I can't afford that price. That is another element to the path of a victim who's trying to decide, is the criminal justice my path or not? So you've got to have a community that's very trauma-informed, but very victim-centered about what the victim wants, not what you want. Even though I'd like to see offenders in jail, that might not be what a victim wants because it could be too dangerous. So we've got to find other options. And that's when you see these communities that have everybody takes responsibility, the school counselor, the hospital president, you know, the, the judge, the, the corporate executive who has a thousand women working for him. Everybody has to be on the same sheet of music. So the victim has other pathways out of violence, because if we don't, 
you know, we're going to find women murdered because, and they didn't call us because they were afraid of the police response. If that, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Part of what you were saying rang a bell because I've talked with a number of women, again, mostly over the last year who were survivors. And they look at it like, I know the world that I'm living in. If I leave here, I don't know that world. I know with this guy that he'll be violent at times. And I know it might take two or three weeks and a lot of makeup before I can go out of the house or the apartment, but I know what I got here. And if I leave, I don't know what he's going to do. And I don't know that world out there, especially if they've been away from it for a long time. I tell cops all the time, I say, look, if you're confused about why victims stay, uh, let me ask you a few questions. Who do you know in society knows that a future personal attack is inevitable? And they'll look at me and they'll say, well, it's victims. I say, well, well, think about yourself. Do you know you're going to be attacked as a cop? Oh, yeah, really. Absolutely. I wear a gun. I wear body armor to work every day. Good. So you know you're going to be attacked, yet you stay on that job. Why don't you leave? What keeps you in that? Right. Who who gets less protection in the criminal justice system than uh, other people? You know, some courts say, well, you know, you know, uh, you're, you should expect this, you know, good wives are submissive, right? And it's, it is victims and it's also cops. And I asked them all of them, I said, you know, if you were talking to a neighbor and they said, what do you do for a living? So I'm a police officer and a future personal attack is inevitable. They would call a mental hospital and say, get him out of here. He's crazy. So look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, why do you live in violence as a cop? The similarities are, are, are a little bit different, except you go home at the end of the shift. You don't have to go home to your offender. Matter of fact, when you go home, you may have to go back down to the jail and bond out your offender who just beat you. And if you don't, you pay a heavy price for it. So you got to get down to the raw essence of what this is for people to really understand it. And that's, again, millions of cops historically have experienced it and never said a word about it. But a few have. and. We're, you know, we're taking encouragement from people like you, Bill, who have lost the most precious thing in the world and trying to articulate to other people, we can stop this. This can be stopped. It's not inevitable. The next generation of abusers is not inevitable. We have the power to stop this. I mean, the studies are over. We, we, we know the causes. You know, David Adams, a friend of mine in Boston who runs Emerge, it's a batter's intervention program, wrote the book, Why Do They Kill? He interviewed 32 killers in prison in that state who killed their spouses and girlfriends, laying out the profile of a, of a DV killer, the motives, the childhood of these offenders, the offender getting away with it in the system, like George Lardner talked about in his book, The Stalking of Kristen, who was killed in Boston. I mean, we, we know this is, we know it now. So, which means we know the, how to stop it. So, it's no excuse anymore. None for every city not to have a family justice center or a, a real progressive court with a DV judge and a DV prosecutor. And we got work to do. We don't have time to blame victims anymore. That, that's got to stop. So, Mark, you have trained officers locally and across the United States. And some information I ran into that was an article in the Tennessean talks about you've even spoken in China and Russia. I'm a Fulbright specialist for the U.S. State Department, and when my wife was alive, I lost my wife to ovarian cancer three years ago. Sorry about that. Thank you. She was an incredible woman. Um, Had to be, yeah. We trained together for the State Department, so we trained police in Cyprus, Turkey, 
Moldova, Georgia, Russia, China, Singapore, Brazil, Micronesia, Australia, England, Ireland. So worldwide, I've trained police in responding to domestic and sexual violence. And I've trained in every state in the country. I, I didn't really keep up with the numbers, Bill, for years. And, and when I retired 20 years ago and started hitting the road, I, I did most of my work for the Justice Department for Office of Violence Against Women and the Civil Rights Division of Justice. And, and I work for IECP, which is the International Association of Chiefs of Police. So I'm immersed in it quite a bit. And I didn't really keep up with it, but I, I tallied it up not long ago. In 20 years, I've, I've traveled around two and a half million miles and something like you know, 1,500 towns, cities, and villages I've been to to talk about this issue. Your frequent flyer must be uh, incredible. I've got quite a few miles on, on Delta, and I need to start using them, I think. Let's say that I'm a mother or father, and I have a daughter, and I don't like the boyfriend. I've gotten enough hints to think that there is domestic violence going on where they live or whatever that relationship is. What should they do? And let me hook to that different thing. Let's say there's someone listening to this, and there'll probably be plenty of them who are experiencing it themselves, where do you send them? I mean, are you saying call your local domestic violence agency and get this thing going and start an escape plan? I don't want to put words in your mouth, and you know this better than I do. So the question is, if you are a friend or a parent who's got a sibling or a friend who is in the middle of domestic violence, obviously you have to look at yourself, I think, first, and you have to be patient you may be the only lifeline this victim has. And the last thing we want to do is start giving victims instructions. They don't need instructions. They don't need someone to tell them what to do. If they're in a violent relationship, that already exists. The offender does it already. You have to replace those instructions with options. Victims need options, not instructions. So the options are many, depending on your community. It could be a counselor at your church. It could be a domestic violence counselor. It could be a, a survivor who you know who can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a victim. But it has to be seamless. You can't just give up on the victim because they're not taking your advice of your notion of how. If it were me, it's not you. So you've got to educate yourself. So the moment the victim says, how do I deal with feeding my children? How do I feel with transportation? How do I deal with being removed from my church that I've been a member of. Because if I report, I can't go back to the same church. How do I deal with, with health care? How do I deal with the mortgage? I mean, all these things are serious issues that if you are in fully supportive of a victim, you've got to educate yourself and say, I've got an option for you. I've got an option for you. I know somebody can help you with that. Then over time, that's better than just saying, well, you got to get out. And that's all the advice but let me give you an example. I, you know, I, this is what police used to do. We, we were trained to do this. They, they called it mediation. It was insane. And I watched officers do it. They say, ma'am, you know, I've listened to your story for a few minutes. I think you need to get out of here. Well, here's what the victim was thinking. Well, damn. Why not think of that? You're the smartest cop I've ever met in my life. I'm going to call the chief and get you promoted tomorrow. And it was a good effort. I mean, we were trying to, but that was an uneducated person who wasn't trained correctly to understand this is not an incident. Incidents do happen all the time. This is a course of conduct. So you've got to have 
everything in place to combat that course of conduct, including food, transportation, healthcare, life, love, all that has to be dealt with. But I can tell you today, Bill, and I'm advocate trained, and I'm proud of that. Ellen Pence was a good friend of mine. She was the grandmother of the DV movement. Barbara Hart, Joan Zorza, Sarah Buell, these are all my heroes. All my all my heroes are women. Yeah, I can say the same thing, by the way. That is true. All my heroes are women. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that gets right to it. They made me who I am, including my mother. Same here. At the top of the list of domestic murder in this country are Native American women. There's a lot of reasons for that. Second to them are African-American women. And I spent a lot of years working in the inner city of Nashville, working with nothing but African-American victims and offenders. When you talk, there's another element here. If you don't understand what community trauma is and how a black body feels about a white body, especially a white body in uniform, then you can't help that victim because they're thinking, and we've asked them, we've done, we've done focus groups around the country. I've been involved in it where you ask an African-American woman, why don't you call the police? And they say, what? You locked up my brother? You locked up my father? You locked up my grandfather? You own my great-grandfather? Why would I trust a white criminal justice system to deal with my problem? And what price do I pay if I reach out to a, a white system? So that is another obstacle to getting victims out. So you, you have to work to solve that problem for a victim. And it's true for anybody that you know. Religion can be part of it. I mean, the, the, your religious beliefs are a big part of your life. And we've talked to victims who told us they went to their minister. Her minister didn't understand it. But the minister said, well, bring him in for couples counseling. You don't do couples counseling with domestic violence cases. You get somebody killed. You know, the, the clergy would call it the holy hush. They knew what was going on, but they didn't. They, they, they thought they were solving it. You can't do that. you you got to have a system that's in place. So now when I talk to clergy members today who got it, you know, they, they've been trained in it, they'll often say, you know, to the parishioner who's a victim, don't, don't let the Bible be the belt he beats you with. And that is understanding what offenders, how they weaponize scripture or they weaponize religious beliefs. I've trained in Arabic countries. You know, the Koran's used, just like the Bible is, to keep women in, in oppressive relationships. That's another element. Again, so you, it's not, there's not a one-off in, in insistence, but what you have to have is an option for the victim to get out. I know I'm watching around the country, you know, the, the, they create these apps for victims to self-assess their own risk. You can download it free from Google Plus or iTunes. There's another one called um, Bright Sky out of Western Pennsylvania, which I recommend. That's very similar. And it's it's taking the modern woman or man, if it's, the men are survivors as well, but the modern woman who normally wouldn't touch a piece of paper but has a phone, they, they, their phone is their life. It's You can download the app and it gives you a complete self-assessment of the behaviors of an offender like in dating relationships. And it works. Th- these are the kind of things that you have to give victims to say, take your time, assess this, see where you are. That's a long answer to a short question, but you have to look at, you have to listen to the victim and say, why didn't you call me? Uh, and I, here's one small example of that. A friend of mine, Dr. T.K. Logan at the University of Kentucky, who's a brilliant, brilliant woman, who's a world-renowned expert in stalking. And by the way, stalking is a pathway to murder. It, it, we know 80% of our DV homicides, victims were stalked before the homicide. That's, we know that for you. We, we saw it here in Nashville. 
So anyway, Dr. Logan goes down to Austin where the National Domestic Violence Hotline is housed and started surveying, asking callers into the hotline why they did or didn't call the police. And and it's just 2015, and her report is really revealing that 80% of these victims said they were still somewhat afraid to call the police. 60% said they didn't want to expose their private matters. 40% said that they feared retaliation from the offender. 20% said they feared losing their children if they called the police. And only one in five said they said they felt safer after calling law enforcement, which it's a real wake up call for police to say, wait a minute, we get, it's like we're the fire department and somebody's house is on fire, but they're not calling us. Why is that happening? We have to understand that. And then we have to, in law enforcement, we have to make sure our community is open to the victim when they leave. And if they don't want the police involved, we have to honor that, but we have to be there if they do want us as well. So. We know the obstacles, the support of, for that victim, the mother, the father, the friend, the sister has to know what those uh, uh, support systems are as well. The idea of bringing options, I think that is that is really one way to really throw a rope around the whole thing. I think that there's no doubt that if somebody is in a relationship like this and they start to tell their parents, the parents are thinking, oh, my God, get out right now. Right. You know, just get out right now. Shut this thing down. I didn't like him in the first place. And then they go into the judging stage and the berating stage. And they're going to say, you know, I didn't like him in the first place and he was no good for you. And I could just tell, and you need to pack up and get out of there. And all these things that doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. None of these things work. And it's sad. I mean, I, I, I've heard all those things. And if my daughter had come to me, I would have thought those things too. Or I would have grabbed my keys and said, where is he? I'm going to go over and have a talk with him. I'd probably get myself killed. Right. Or him. Well, well, you know, Bill, if I've had one conversation about a thousand with detectives, so once we create our domestic violence division, I worked there as a sergeant and as a lieutenant. So I had around 20 detectives who worked for me and I manage cases. Well, you you case manage, you review their work, help them get the case to court. And very often I'd have a a, a male detective, very unbelievable, great, great cops. They'd die for you in a minute. Most cops would. They'd come in, they say, I don't get this. I went to the hospital. Her arm was broken. I know he did it to her. And I said, who did this to you? And she said, what are you going to do if I tell you? And the, my detective would say, well, we're going to arrest him. He broke your arm. And she'd say, I don't want that to happen. And I asked, I, this, I mean, this was almost a repeat. And, they, and I'd say, and so what did she say? She said she loved him. Mm. And the detective would say, can you imagine that? <laughs> I said, you're loving somebody that break your arm. And, and, I, and I'd have to give them the speech. I'd say, look, this is the only crime where this is an element. You know, burglars don't like to love the homeowners, but victims do love their offenders. And I, I would remind them, I'd say, love is complicated. So if it's against the law to pick the wrong person as a mate, hell, half the country would be in jail. So you can't fault somebody for falling in love with somebody. I mean, you don't get involved in somebody unless you love them and you have some love for them. My mother loved my stepfather and my other siblings. We've had lots of conversations about that, about how could she love him and what she did. And as we got older and and we understood the ways of the world, we said, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You want to have a relationship. You're hopeful that it it will change. And that's what this particular kind of offender is looking for, that hopeful victim who will be forgiving. And say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. I, I get angry sometimes. I can't control my anger. Will you please forgive me? And this is when the the rotation of in and out and almost out and almost in starts. And then when that 
sad sack crying i'm not going to do it again doesn't work then that's when very often the threats start and then if yeah. that doesn't work then the homicide is a final solution for the relationship yeah these people who are victims cling to the hope that it can go back to some of the wonderful things they remember at the very beginning right. there's a male survivor on our podcast i interviewed him probably two years ago and he was clinging to what he called kind of drug that kept him in the relationship with something he called grade A hopium. <laughs> interesting, huh? Yeah. That's pretty well put. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting turn of the word there, but it's accurate. You're hopeful, and this is again. This is the reason why so few do call us. I mean, we we just suspect only half call the police. And then the ones that do call, I know we did our crisis line work here years ago. We found that the victims call the crisis line for the first time after the fifth assault. I trained in Canada as well. I'm, I remember I was in Ontario a few years ago, and then provisional police said they saw about 20 events before the victim had called the crisis line. Not the police, just the crisis line. So that's the process that people get frustrated about. But that's the opportunity is at that moment— You've got to be able to put an option there. One example is a friend of mine, Jacqueline Campbell at Johns Hopkins University, back 20 years ago, created the, the danger assessment for domestic violence cases for mental health. Law enforcement saw it and said, we need to adapt this to police. And they did. The Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence and Johns Hopkins built the LAP, the Lethality Assessment Program. It's been used all across the country. My agency uses it. But what it does, it is uh, 11 basic questions are the precursors to murder mm-hmm. that you ask the victim. Is he threatening you with a gun? Is he threatening your children? Is he stalked you? Is he battered you in pregnancy? And the way the victim answers it, you scale the lethality of the offender. If the offender's high danger, then before you leave the scene as an officer, you call a trained advocate and they put him on the phone with the victim. Then the advocate gives the victim options, safety planning, protective order, shelter stays. So you're bringing advocacy to the call as an officer. That works. That I'm, uh, I was in Moldova a couple of years ago, and they were working on a similar system there. Um, of course, the Australians, they're, they're doing it. The Brits are doing it, uh, the Canadians. So we now know that it's just not police response. You've got to have, you got to fill the gap quick. Give that victim some options right away to get out. And in Pennsylvania, I've been watching the numbers in Pennsylvania. I've been training there for probably 35 years the state coalition, PCADV, is the oldest state coalition in the country. They have been shepherding cops and, and training police across Pennsylvania, and they've kept up with the numbers. And some of the numbers I've seen are pretty impressive. When you have a police advocacy response, you've got up to 60 to 70 percent of victims who will will respond to an advocate or will go to shelter. We've never seen anything like that before. Mm-hmm. And the interview with victims in Pennsylvania has been interesting. They said, nobody ever asked me these questions before. These these questions that are the ingredients of a murder. And a lot of victims have said, when that officer asked me, did he batter you while you were pregnant? He did. I know what that means now. I'm at a high risk of being killed. I've got to get help. I didn't realize I was in this kind of danger because I was hopeful that it would stop. So there's got to be something to, to explain their feelings about it as well. And these systems that are in place now that are being put in place, it's the future of policing. Now, the other one is family justice centers. We have the largest family justice center in the world in Nashville now. It's not so much about the victim. It's about the system 
working together collectively to make the law keep its promise for victims. They're all over the country now, but I'm so proud of ours here because we fought hard to get it and now it's in place mm-hmm. and it's a worse, safer community for it. You mentioned a whole lot of things. The, the lethality assessment is one that a detective gave me a couple of years ago, and it was interesting. He gave different instances of using it. Some people will light up the whole 11 points that go right down. Yes, 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 yes. What goes with that oftentimes is that that the victim needs to be convinced about how bad it is or how dangerous it is. And the victim needs to get to that point, as you know, where they have to bottom out with this whole thing. Like they have to, they have to, they have to prove to themselves they have to stop this. They have to, they have to get away. Up until now, maybe they've been kind of juggling this thing around or thinking about trade-offs, but they have to get to that point where they're committed to it, much like an alcoholic needs to bottom out. They have to feel like they've lost enough of their identity and themselves and the life that they're going to be leading is going to be horrible to get to that point where they say, I can't do this anymore, and then start to make the moves, you know, make the moves. Well, Bill, I, th- I think most do. We, ne- we never see them. It's the one moment where she slapped or she threatened her and she says, I'm done. My mother taught me differently. My father never abused my mother. I'm not going to be abused. And they walk out. We never see those people. They never call the crisis line. They never come to court. It's just like survivors. I think most, for the lion's share, most survivors get out. They never look back. They never abuse again. I'm a 90 tenor in policing. And the 90 percent of the crimes committed by 10 percent of the population so not everybody who survives becomes an abuser just not like every victim lives in it for years but there are you know different kinds of victims i've been dealt with elder victims late in life domestic violence lifelong domestic violence incest inside families with domestic violence those are the tougher cases but i think most do get out and we don't credit women We underestimate women all the time, and that's just the stupidest thing in the world to do. One of the reasons I I push for equity in policing, I think we should have 50% women and 50% men. We need women in policing. We're at about 12, 13% in the United States right now. The Canadians are at 30. The Australians are at 30. When you bring women in to policing, that changes things. We underestimate women sometimes. I guess people looked at my mother and said, you're stupid. Why would you stay in this? We got out. We survived. It took us a while. We managed to get out, and it was because of her courage that we got out. Yeah, she probably saved all of you. Yeah, every one of us. And even the perpetrator, she saved his skin from heading into prison. Or nearly dying from being poisoned by the two boys in the family. And this is one of the things that, I, that I, when I talk to cops about this, about how do you respond to children, you've got to see them. You've got to make sure they're not hurt. But spend a moment and tell children don't get between your mom and your dad when they're fighting this because I've worked homicides where children were killed as well. And by the way, DV offenders and Adams's book, come out of they kill said that uh, male offenders who've killed their family members call it righteous slaughter. And the fact that they felt righteous in taking the children because if she's not taking our kids, if I can't have my kids, nobody can. So I'm going to kill them all. This is a entitlement belief system in your brain. If you're an offender, but I would tell cops, every time you go to a call, you've got to stop and make sure the kids are okay. Do a child safety checklist with them. Tell them not to get involved in the fight. Show them how to call 911. Tell them what a 911 is. But the bottom line, before you leave any home that you've been there as a cop, tell the children, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. 
because children learn to start blaming themselves, like living with an alcoholic, which is another level of issues, that's not their fault. Because if they believe it's their fault, then they're an easier target as an adult to be, be abused. Is that, that, so it's a progression not only for the offenders, it's a progression for the children as well. And then everything that goes with it. My wife used to do the ACE test with children who came in her program. It's the Adverse Childhood Experience Test, where you look at the exposure of violence as a child to determine the lifelong impacts. The CDC designed it, Dr. Anda, years ago. And they're tracking like 16,000 people originally. Were, and they're looking at ovarian cancer and lung cancer and depression and alcoholism, all generated from those early moments of exposure to violence. So I, I tell cops that. And I said, look, we're not, sci- we're not scientists, but if you knew that you could just say one thing to a child and mentor and model for that child that I'm a cop, I'm in uniform, I'm not your enemy, we care about you, don't get hurt, we worry about you, how far would that go? You may be talking to the future police chief in your community or the police lieutenant who's doing podcast on preventing domestic violence 40 years later. Very well put. I wanted to ask you about that just popped into my mind was on the list of warning signs, and we talk plenty about that on this podcast, but one of the cards that an abuser will play sometimes is if you break up with me, I'll kill myself. Mm -hmm. What do you tell someone who's being abused by someone who says something like that? For advocacy, there may be a whole other way to do this. I, I can't imagine it would be, but for law enforcement, you can't ignore suicidal ideations. But when you train a police officer correctly to when they hear these kind of things, this is part of, for some offenders, manipulation. And it's effective. It's, it's sort of a bait and switch. In other words, we've had victims who were in shelter, and the, he, got, he got word in through a friend or family member that if you don't come home, I'm going to kill myself. And victims would actually leave shelter and go home thinking for a moment, for a moment, wait a minute. So now this is interesting. So I've never been able to control anything. but my presence will control him from killing himself. So I feel like I've got some control over this and it's all false. It's all a manipulation of the victim. But it also is a real high indicator for future violence, and not only for the victim, for the, for the murder-suicide case. And I worked a lot of those over the years. So you have to explain it to victims that suicide threats are used as a tool to control you. They're working on your love for them, your sympathy for them, to keep you in the relationship because it works. It works, but it's it's so it's top end. I mean, when I say top end, you're at the top of the of the level of lethality. When you hear people start talking about you know suicide and I'm not going to be around much longer, and you, they they these veiled threats of you have to listen to that. This is the, the beauty of red flag laws right now. You know, Maine's now debating whether they should have a red flag law. That seems insane. My state is still battling to have a red flag law, but the states who do have it. Suicide's definitely on the list where you want you, you take someone's guns away. So how would a red flag law work? I'm trying to picture that. You exhibit some behavior that you're threatening to yourself or the public, and you have guns, and a, someone know, knows it's a family member, a friend, and you notify police that someone is threatening suicide or threatening to, to kill someone. And it's you know it's easy to do nowadays. You just go on Instagram, you know, Facebook, wherever you want to go to to voice how you're feeling. You see that, and the red flag law kicks in, and guns are seized from violent people. And it works. It works. 
I see now. This week at the Supreme Court, they're hearing the Rahimi case. And I signed on the amicus brief on the case for the Fort Worth DA's office. And, and Rahimi was a offender who was under protective order and had guns. And he said it was unconstitutional to take my Second Amendment rights away just because I'm under protective order. Well, the Fifth Circuit in Texas said, we agree. Because there's restrictions. The federal law says you can't have a gun if you're under protective order. Well, that's being tested now in this very conservative Supreme Court, and everybody's worried that the Supreme Court's saying, yeah, sure, let's have DV offenders have guns. And if they do that, there are going to be a lot of dead victims, and there's going to be a lot of dead cops, because this keeps the guns out of hands of offenders who've done things like threaten suicide and threaten to kill the family members. Because those threatening to commit suicide, good chance they'll take somebody with them and then do it. I've had old detectives tell me that they... This murder-suicide thing, the threatening suicide, they just had not decide who they're going to kill yet. That's right. Very well put. Bill, let me thank you for this, for exposing your life and the life of your daughter. Um, it's it's not easy to do this, and it's not. And you, I, I know you would rather be with your daughter right now than be on a podcast talking about her, but you honor her by doing this work because— when you bring things out in the light, that's the best way to stop it. This is part of it. This is the work you do, the work I do now to educate people now and for tomorrow that this can be stopped. We can stop this. And this is not a virus that has no vaccine for. This is something we know how to, we got to stop. And that's, that's a meaningful life to do that work. So thank you for that. And second, I'd like for the survivors and the victims listening to this podcast to know none of this is your fault. You, you got you to stop beating yourself up. I did for years. My siblings did for years. And when you figure out what, how you were conditioned to blame yourself as a child and you keep doing that as an adult, it keeps you trapped in that loop. But it's not your fault. And you don't deserve it there's a better life for you. So if you're a parent listening to this, be patient with your children. They're children. They don't have 40, 50 years of experience of living life. You've got to be there for them whenever they get decided they're going to make that move to get out. I, it's not what they're doing. It's what we're doing and how we're ready for them when they want to step out and say, I need your help. Fabulous. This podcast has been so fortunate in attracting prolific subject matter experts ready to speak the truth about the hell on earth that is domestic violence. And you and your family have lived the nightmare not only for 10 years, which you've talked about, but also the 24-7 emotional and physical conflict that still goes on just because you and your mom got out of there after 10 years in the 1960s doesn't mean that it's not on your mind all the time. I mean, it really led to your career and, and you can't get away from it. And just wanted to say that my admiration for you is directed at your ability to channel your past and create safer futures for other people. And your pain and suffering has been transformed into tangible tools and methods that people can take with them and, and make their lives better and to get away from this evil that's there that can creep into the hearts and minds of some people, mostly men, unfortunately, being one. It's at times I really do feel embarrassed to be a man and and I feel for women big time and as do you. But 
you've taken this immense challenge on and you're making a profound difference in this world in real ways. You know, it's, it's one thing to have something horrible happen to you and to spend your life reliving it and suffering from it. It's another thing to take it, package it, do the work, do the reading, do the day by day. You've done it in such an incredibly big way. I've talked with plenty of people who've been stung by this and they just continue to be stung by it. And the only relief is, I guess, one day they'll pass away and they can let it go. But you've used it as your own kind of nuclear energy. Mark, I just want to thank you. And and you have really, I anticipated this interview would be great information, but this is like a fifth dimension of of information and taking us down so many paths. Your answers are solid. They're fact-based and you're just operating on so many different levels. So I just have to say, I just admire you so much and it's just, I'll carry this forever. I really will. This chat we're having, I, I hope we can stay in touch. I really do. Absolutely. Thank you. That's so kind of you, Bill. Thank you very much. Yeah. You're just a great guy. I just feel good that, that we were connected. Your film is called This Is Where I Learned Not to Sleep. It refers back to that place where you grew up. How can someone see this film? How can they get to this documentary? There's a website, thisiswherefilm.com, and you can go to the site. All the instructions are there, how you can stream it, how you can show it at your event, at your, at your program. We just did a, a month of live streaming. We'll probably do, do another. And it's, this is not a money-making operation. It's a documentary. A lot of people don't understand that. I mean, I'm just doing the work I do every day, training communities. But they can see it. There's a, uh, there's a um, short clip about the film there and describing, you know, how you can then pay a licensing fee. I think that you can watch the film. And then most of that goes to the nonprofit. This last month, uh, the money's gone to the Mary Paris Center in Nashville. So, and I hope that would happen, that we'd have something that could be used for that, for fundraising, for awareness. And that's exactly what happened. So this is where film.com, you can, you can see the, all the instructions. And you're saying it benefits the Mary Parish Center. That's P-A-R-R-I-S-H? Yeah, Mary Parish was my mother. And when my wife started the transition housing program, they named it after her. And um, it's maryparish.org. And it's a really wonderful place. It's Miracles happen. <laughs> I've seen unbelievable moments where people walked in with a bag of clothes. And two years later, they walk out with a car and health care and a college scholarship and English as second language. And it's just amazing. Oh. Not just surviving, but flourishing. That's the what you want to happen. It's one thing to think about your mother. It's another thing to do this. I mean, mm-hmm. that is really sending it up to the heights. It's just what she would want. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. This brings us to the close of our interview with Lieutenant Mark Wynn. We've just heard from a law enforcement officer who has brought into focus the myriad of concerns our women and men in blue must consider when working domestic violence cases, cases extremely dangerous for victims, offenders, and officers. See our show notes regarding Lieutenant Mark Wynn's new documentary entitled, This is Where I Learned Not to Sleep. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. 
If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com.